Chronicler can only marry her if he finds something more precious than the princess and brings it back to the High King. Graham made an appreciative noise. That's a pisser of a task. What's a man to do? You can't bring something back and say, here, this is worth more than your little girl. The innkeeper gave a grave nod. So Chronicler wanders the world looking for ancient treasures and old magics, hoping to find something he can bring back to the king. Why doesn't he just write about the king in his magic book? Jake asked. Why doesn't he write down, and then the king stopped being a bastard and let us get married already? Because he doesn't know any of the king's secrets, the innkeeper explained, and the high king of Modag knows some magic and can protect himself. Most importantly, he knows Chronicler's weaknesses. He knows if you trick Chronicler into drinking ink, he has to do the next three favors you ask him. And more important, he knows Chronicler can't control you if you have your name hidden away somewhere safe. The High King's name is written in a book of glass, hidden in a box of copper, and that box is locked away in a great iron chest where nobody can touch it. There was a moment's pause as everyone considered this. Then old Cobb began nodding thoughtfully. That last bit tickled my memory, he said slowly. I seem to remember a story about this chronicler fellow going to look for a magic fruit. Whoever ate the fruit would suddenly know the names of all things, and he'd have powers like Taberlin the Great. The innkeeper rubbed his chin, nodding slowly. I think I heard that one too, he said but it was a long time ago, and I can't say as I remember all the details. Ah, well, old Cobb said as he drank the last of his beer and knocked down his mug. Nothing to be ashamed of, Coat. Some folk are good at remembering and some ain't. You make a fine pie, but we all know who the storyteller is round here. Old Cobb climbed stiffly down off his stool and motioned to Graham and Jake. Come on, then. We can walk together as far as Byra's place. I'll tell you two all about it. Now this chronicler, he's tall and pale and thin as a rail, with hair as black as ink. The door of the Waystone Inn banged closed. What in God's name was that all about? Chronicler demanded. Quoth looked sideways at Chronicler. He smiled a small, sharp smile. How does it feel? he asked knowing people out there are telling stories about you. They're not telling stories about me, Chronicler said. They're just a bunch of nonsense. Not nonsense, Quoth said, seeming a little bit offended. It might not be true, but that doesn't mean it's nonsense. He looked at Bast. I'd like the paper sword. Bast beamed. The king's task was a nice touch, Reshi. I don't know about the fairy blood, though. Demon blood would have been too sinister, Quoth said. He needed a twist. At least I won't have to hear him tell it, Chronicler said sullenly, prodding a bit of potato with his spoon. Quoth looked up, then chuckled darkly. You don't understand, do you? A fresh story like that on a harvest day? They'll be at it like a child with a new toy. Old Cobb will talk about Chronicler to a dozen people while they're bucking hay and drinking water in the shade. Tonight at Shep's Wake, folk from ten towns will hear about the Lord of Stories. 
It will spread like a fire in a field. Chronicler looked back and forth between the two of them, his expression vaguely horrified. Why? It's a gift, Quoth said. You think I want this? Chronicler said incredulously. Fame? Not fame, Quoth said grimly. Perspective. You go rummaging around in other people's lives. You hear rumors and go digging for the painful truth beneath the lovely lies. You believe you have a right to these things, but you don't. He looked hard at the scribe. When someone tells you a piece of their life, they're giving you a gift, not granting you your due. Quoth wiped his hands on the clean linen cloth. I'm giving you my story with all the grubby truths intact, all my mistakes and idiocies laid out naked in the light. If I decide to pass over some small piece because it bores me, I'm well within my rights. I won't be goaded into changing my mind by some farmer's tale. I'm not an idiot. Chronicler looked down at his soup. It was a little heavy-handed, wasn't it? It was, Quoth said. Chronicler looked up with a sigh and gave a small, embarrassed smile. Well, you can't blame me for trying. I can, actually, Quoth said. But I believe I've made my point. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry for any trouble that might cause you. He gestured to the door and the departed farmers. I might have overreacted a bit. I've never responded well to manipulation. Quoth stepped out from behind the bar, heading to the table near the hearth. Come on now, both of you. The trial itself was tedious business, but it had important repercussions. Chapter 48 A Significant Absence I went through the admissions lottery and was lucky enough to draw a late slot. I was glad for the extra time, as my trial had left me little opportunity to study for my exams. Still, I wasn't terribly worried. I had time to study and free access to the archives. What's more, for the first time since I'd come to the university, I wasn't a pauper. I had thirteen talents in my purse. Even after I paid Davy the interest on her loan, I would easily have enough for tuition. Best of all, the long hours spent searching for the gram had taught me a great deal about the archives. While I might not know as much as an experienced scriv, I was familiar with many of her hidden corners and quiet secrets. So while I studied, I also allowed myself the freedom to do other reading while I prepared for admissions. I closed the book I'd been poring over, a well-written comprehensive history of the Aturan Church. It was as useless as all the rest. Willem looked up as my book thumped shut. Nothing? he asked. Less than nothing, I said. The two of us were studying in one of the fourth-floor reading holes, much smaller than our customary place on the third floor, but given how close we were to admissions, we'd been lucky to find a private room at all. Why don't you let it go? Will suggested. You've been beating this Amir thing like a dead horse for what? Two span? I nodded not wanting to admit my research into the Amir had actually started long before our bet had taken us to Puppet. And what have you found so far? Shelves of books, I said, dozens of stories, mentions in a hundred histories. He gave me a level look. 
and this wealth of information irritates you. No, I said, the lack of information troubles me. There isn't any solid information about the Amir in any of these books. None, Willem said skeptically. Oh, every historian in the last three hundred years talks about them, I said. They speculate on how the Amir influenced the decline of the empire. Philosophers talk about the ethical ramifications of their actions. I gestured to the books. That tells me what people think about the Amir. It doesn't tell me anything about the Amir themselves. Willem frowned at my stack of books. It can't all be historians and philosophers. There are stories, too, I said. Early on, there are stories about the great wrongs they righted. Later, you get stories about the terrible things they did. An Amir in Rhaenyra kills a corrupt judge. Another in Jumpui puts down a peasant uprising. A third in Malithi poisons half the town's nobility. And that isn't solid information? Willem asked. They're soft stories, I said. Second or third hand. Three quarters of them are simply hearsay. I can't find corroborating evidence for them anywhere. Why can't I find any mention of the corrupt judge in the church records? His name should be recorded in every case he tried. What was the date of this peasant uprising? And why can't I find it mentioned in any of the other histories? It was three hundred years ago, Willem said reproachfully. You can't expect all those little details to survive. I expect some of the little details to survive. You know how obsessive the Talons are about their records, I said. We have a thousand years of court documents from a hundred different cities squirreled away down in sub two, whole rooms full. I waved my hands dismissively. But fine, let's abandon the small details. There are huge questions I can't find any answers for. When was the Order Amir founded? How many Amir were there? Who paid them and how much? Where did that money come from? Where were they trained? How did they come to be a part of the Talon Church? Faltemi Rice answered that, Willem said. They grew out of the tradition of the mendicant judges. I picked up a book at random and thumped it onto the table in front of him. Find me one bit of proof to support that theory. Find me one record that shows a mendicant judge being promoted into the ranks of the Amir. Show me one record of an Amir being employed by a court. Find me one church document that shows an Amir presiding over a case. I crossed my arms in front of my chest belligerently. Go on. I'll wait. Willem ignored the book. Maybe there weren't as many Amir as people assume. Perhaps there were only a few of them, and their reputation grew out of their control. He gave me a pointed look. You should understand how that works. No, I said. This is a significant absence. Sometimes finding nothing can be finding something. You're starting to sound like a Lodin, Willem said. I frowned at him, but decided not to rise to the bait. No, listen for a minute. Why would there be so little factual information about the Amir? There are only three possibilities. I held up fingers to mark them off. One, nothing was written down. I think we can safely discard that. They were too important to be entirely neglected by historians, clerks, and the obsessive documentation of the church. I tucked that finger away. Two, by an odd chance, 
copies of the books that do have this information have simply never made their way here to the archives. But that's ridiculous. It's impossible to think that over all the years, nothing on the subject has ended up in the largest library in the world. I folded down the second finger. Three. I pointed with the remaining finger. Someone has removed this information, altered it, or destroyed it. Willem frowned. Who would do that? Who indeed, I said. Who would benefit most from the destruction of the information of the Emir? I hesitated, letting the tension build. Who else but the Emir themselves? I had expected him to dismiss my idea, but he didn't. An interesting thought, Willem said. But why assume the Emir are behind it? It is much more sensible to think the church itself is responsible. Certainly the Talins would like nothing better than to quietly erase the Emir's atrocities. True, I admitted. But the church isn't very strong here in the Commonwealth, and these books come from all over the world. A Sealdish historian wouldn't have any compunctions about writing a history of the Emir. A Sealdish historian would have very little interest in writing the history of a heretic branch of a pagan church, Willem pointed out. Besides, how could a discredited handful of Emir do something the church itself could not achieve? I leaned forward. I think the Emir are far older than the Talon Church, I said. During the time of the Aeturan Empire, a great deal of their public strength was with the church, but they were more than just a group of wandering justices. And what leads you to this belief? Willem said. From his expression, I could see I was losing Willem's support rather than gaining it. A piece of ancient pottery, I thought. A story I heard from an old man in Tarbian. I know it because of something the Chandrian let slip after they killed everyone I ever knew. I sighed and shook my head, knowing how crazy I would sound if I told the truth. That was why I scoured the archives. I needed some tangible evidence to support my theory, something that wouldn't make me a laughingstock. I found copies of the court documents from the time the Amir were denounced, I said. Do you know how many Amir they put on trial in Tarbian? Will shrugged. I held up a single finger. One. One Amir in all of Tarbian and the clerk writing the transcript of the trial made it clear the man they put on trial was a simpleton who didn't understand what was going on. I still saw doubt on Willem's face. Just think on it, I pleaded. The scraps I found suggest there were at least 3,000 Amir in the Empire before they were disbanded. 3,000 highly trained, heavily armed, wealthy men and women absolutely devoted to the greater good. Then, one day the church denounces them, disbands their entire order, and confiscates their property. I snapped my fingers. And three thousand deadly, justice-obsessed fanatics just disappear? They roll over and decide to let someone else take care of the greater good for a while? No protest? No resistance? Nothing? I gave him a hard look and shook my head firmly. No. That goes against human nature. Besides... I haven't found one record of a member of the Emir being brought before the church's justice. Not one. Is it so outrageous to think they might have decided to go underground to continue their work in a more secret way? And if that's reasonable, I continued before he could interrupt, 
Doesn't it also make sense they might try to preserve their secrecy by carefully pruning histories over the last three hundred years? There was a long pause. Willem didn't dismiss it out of hand. An interesting theory, he said slowly. But it leads me to one last question. He eyed me seriously. Have you been drinking? I slumped in my chair. No. He came to his feet. Then you should start. You have been spending too much time with all these books. You need to wash the dust from your brains. So we went for a drink, but I still harbored my suspicions. I bounced the idea off Simon when I next had the chance. He accepted it more easily than Willem had, which isn't to say he believed me, just that he accepted the possibility. He said I should mention it to Lauren. I didn't. The blank-faced master archivist still made me nervous, and I avoided him at every opportunity for fear I might give him some excuse to ban me from the archives. The last thing I wanted to do was suggest his precious archives had been slowly pruned over the last three hundred years. Chapter 49 The Ignorant Edema I saw Elxadal raise a hand in greeting from across the courtyard. Quoth, he smiled warmly. The very fellow I was hoping to see. Could I borrow a moment of your time? Of course, I said. While I liked Master Dahl, we hadn't had much contact together outside the lecture hall. Could I buy you a drink or a bite of lunch? I've been meaning to thank you more properly for speaking on my behalf at the trial, but I've been busy. As have I, Dahl said. I've actually been meaning to talk to you for days, but time keeps getting away from me. He looked around. I wouldn't turn down a bit of lunch, but I should probably forego the drink. I have admissions to oversee in less than an hour. We stepped into the White Heart. I'd barely even seen the inside of the place, as it was far too rich for the likes of me. Elxadal was recognizable in his dark master's robes, and the host fawned a bit as he led the two of us to a private table. Dahl seemed perfectly at his ease as he took a seat, but I was increasingly nervous. I couldn't imagine why the master's sympathist would seek me out for a conversation. What can I bring you? asked the tall, thin man as soon as we were in our chairs. Drinks, a selection of cheeses, we have a delightful lemon trout as well. The trout and cheeses would do nicely, Dahl said. The host turned to me. And yourself? I'll try the trout as well, I said. Wonderful, he said, rubbing his hands together in anticipation. And to drink? Cider, I said. Do you have any fallows red? Dal asked hesitantly. We do, said the host. And it's a lovely year, too, if I do say so myself. I'll have a cup, Dal said, glancing at me. One cup shouldn't alter my judgment too badly. The host hurried away, leaving me alone at the table with Elksa Dal. It felt odd sitting across the table from him. I shifted nervously in my seat. So, how are things with you? Dahl asked conversationally. Passing fair, I said. It was a good term, with the exception of... I made a gesture toward Imre. Dahl gave a humorless chuckle. 
That was a brush with the old days, wasn't it? He shook his head. Consortation with demons. Good Lord. The host returned with our drinks and left without a word. Master Dahl picked up his wide clay cup and held it in the air. To not getting burned alive by superstitious folk, he said. I smiled despite my discomfiture and raised my wooden mug. A fine tradition. We both drank, Dahl sighing appreciatively at the wine. Dahl looked at me across the table. So tell me, he said. Have you ever considered what you're going to do with yourself when you're done here? After you have your gilder, I mean. I haven't thought of it that much, I admitted honestly. It seems such a long way off. At the rate you're rising through the ranks, it might not be so long at that. Already a relar at... How old are you again? Seventeen, I lied smoothly. I was sensitive about my age. Many students were nearly twenty before they enrolled in the university, let alone joined the Arcanum. Seventeen, Dal mused softly. It's so easy to forget that. You carry yourself so tall. His eyes got a faraway look in them. Lord and lady, I was a mess at seventeen. My studies, trying to sort out my place in the world. Women. He shook his head slowly. It gets better, you know. Give it three or four years and everything settles down a bit. He raised his clay cup to me briefly before taking another drink. Not that you seem to be having much trouble. Relar at seventeen. Quite a mark of distinction. I flushed a bit, not knowing what to say. The host returned and began laying dishes on the table, a small board with an array of different sliced cheeses, a bowl with small toasted pieces of bread, a bowl of strawberry preserves, a bowl of blueberry jam, a small dish of shelled walnuts. Dahl picked up a small piece of bread and a slice of crumbling white cheese. You're quite the sympathist, he said. There are any number of opportunities out there for a person as skilled as yourself. I spread a bit of strawberry across a piece of cheese and toast, then put it into my mouth to give myself time to think. Was Dahl implying he wanted me to focus more on my study of sympathy? Was he implying he wanted to sponsor me to Elthe? Elodin had sponsored my elevation to Raylar, but I knew these things changed. Masters occasionally fought over particularly promising students. Mola, for example, had been a scriv before Arwill stole her away into the Medica. I do enjoy my study of sympathy quite a bit, I said carefully. That's abundantly clear, Dahl said with a smile. Some of your classmates wish you enjoyed it a little less, I can assure you of that. He ate another piece of cheese, then continued. That said, it is possible to overdo it. Didn't Tecum say too much study harms the student? Ertram the wiser, actually, I said. It had been in one of the books Master Lauren had set aside for Relar to study this term. It's true at any rate, he said. You might want to consider taking a term off to relax a bit. Travel a little. Get some sun. He took another drink. It's not good to see one of the Edimaru without a tan. I didn't know what to say to that. The thought of taking a holiday from the university had never occurred to me. Where would I possibly go? 
The host arrived with plates of fish steaming and smelling of lemon and butter. For a while, both of us concentrated on our food. I was glad for an excuse not to talk. Why would Dahl compliment me on my studies, then encourage me to leave? After a while, Elksa Dahl gave a contented sigh and pushed back his plate. Let me tell you a little story, he said. A story I like to call the ignorant edema. I looked up at that, slowly chewing my mouthful of fish. I kept my expression carefully composed. He arched an eyebrow, as if waiting to see if I had anything to say. When I didn't, he continued. Once there was a learned arcanist. He knew all of sympathy and sigildry and alchemy. He had ten dozen names tucked neatly into his head, spoke eight languages, and had exemplary penmanship. Really, the only thing that kept him from being a master was poor timing and a certain lack of social grace. Dahl took a sip of wine. So this fellow went chasing the wind for a while, hoping to find his fortune out in the wide world. And while he was on the road to Tinue, he came to a lake he needed to cross. Dahl smiled broadly. Luckily, there was an Edema boatman who offered to ferry him to the other side. The arcanist, seeing the trip would take several hours, tried to start a conversation. What do you think, he asked the boatman, about Tecum's theory of energy as an elemental substance rather than a material property? The boatman replied he'd never thought on it at all. What's more, he had no plans to. Surely your education included Tecum's theophany? the arcanist asked. I never had what you might call an education, Yarner, the boatman said, and I wouldn't know this Tecum of yours if he showed up selling needles to my wife. Curious, the arcanist asked a few questions, and the edema admitted he didn't know who Feltemi Rice was, or what a gearwind did. The arcanist continued for a long hour, first out of curiosity, then with dismay. The final straw came when he discovered the boatman couldn't even read or write. Really, sir, the arcanist said, appalled. It is every man's job to improve himself. A man without the benefits of education is hardly more than an animal. Dahl grinned. Well, as you can guess, the conversation didn't go very far after that. They rode for the next hour in a tense silence, but just as the far shore was coming into sight, a storm blew up. Waves started to lash the little boat, making the timbers creak and groan. The edema took a hard look at the clouds and said, It'll be true bad in five minutes, then some at worse afore it clears. This boat of mine won't hold together through it all. We're going to have to swim the last little bit. And with this, the ferryman takes off his shirt and begins to tie it around his waist. But I don't know how to swim, says the arcanist. Dahl drank off the last of his wine, turned the cup upside down, and set it firmly on the tabletop. There was a moment of expectant silence as he watched me, a vaguely self-satisfied expression on his face. Not a bad story, I admitted. The ruse accent was a little over the top. Dull bent at the waist in a quick, mocking bow. I will take it under consideration, he said, then raised one finger and gave me a conspiratorial look. Not only is my story designed to delight and entertain, but there is a kernel of truth hidden within, 
where only the cleverest student might find it. His expression turned mysterious. All the truth in the world is held in stories, you know. Later that evening, I related the encounter to my friends while playing cards at Anchor's. He's giving you a hint, thick-wit, Manette said irritably. The cards had been against us all night, and we were five hands behind. You just refuse to hear it. He's hinting I should leave off studying sympathy for a term, I asked. No, Manette snapped. He's telling you what I've told you twice already. You're a king-high idiot if you go through admissions this term. What? I asked. Why? Manette set his cards down with profound calm. Quoth, you're a clever boy, but you have a world of trouble listening to things you don't want to hear. He looked left, then right at Willem and Simon. Can you try telling him? Take a term off, Willem said without looking up from his cards, then added, thick wit. You really have to, Sim said earnestly. Everyone's still talking about the trial. It's all anyone is talking about. The trial? I laughed. That was more than a span ago. They're talking about how I was found completely innocent, exonerated in the eyes of the Iron Law and Merciful Talu himself. Manette snorted loudly, lowering his cards. It would have been better if you'd been guilty in a quiet way rather than be innocent so loud. He looked at me. Do you know how long it's been since an arcanist was brought up on charges of consortation? No, I admitted. Neither do I, he said. Which means it's been a long, long while. You're innocent. Lovely for you. But the trial has given the university a great shining black eye. It's reminded folk that while you might not deserve burning, some arcanists might. He shook his head. You can be certain the masters are uniformly wet-cat-mad about that. Some students aren't too pleased either, Will added darkly. It isn't my fault there was a trial, I protested, then backed up a bit. Not entirely. Ambrose stirred this up. He was backstage during the whole thing, laughing up his sleeve. Even so, Will said. Ambrose is sensible enough to avoid admissions this term. What? I asked, surprised. He's not going through admissions? He is not, Willem said. He left for home two days ago. But there was nothing to connect him to the trial, I said. Why would he leave? Because the masters are not idiots, Manette said. The two of you have been snapping at each other like mad dogs since you first met. He tapped his lips thoughtfully, his expression full of exaggerated innocence. Say, that reminds me. Whatever were you doing at the Golden Pony the night Ambrose's room caught fire? Playing cards, I said. Of course you were, Manette said, his tone thick with sarcasm. The two of you have been throwing rocks at each other for a full year, and one of them has finally hit the hornet's nest. The only sensible thing to do is run off to a safe distance and wait till the buzzing stops. Simmon cleared his throat timidly. I hate to join the chorus, he said apologetically, but rumor has gotten around you were seen having lunch with Sleet. He grimaced, and Fella told me she'd heard you were, um, courting Davy.
You know that's not true about Davy, I said. I've just been visiting her in order to keep the peace. She was half an inch away from wanting to eat my liver for a while there. And I only had one conversation with Sleet. It was barely fifteen minutes long. Davy? Manette exclaimed with dismay. Davy and Sleet? One expelled and the other the next best thing? He threw down his cards. Why would you be seen with those people? Why am I even being seen with you? Oh, come now. I looked back and forth between Will and Sim. It's that bad? Willem set down his cards. I predict, he said calmly, that if you go through admissions, you will receive a tuition of at least thirty-five talents. He looked back and forth between Sim and Manette. I will wager a full gold mark to this effect. Does anyone care to take my bet? Neither of them took him up on his offer. I felt a desperate sinking in my stomach. But this can't, I said, this... Sim put his cards down as well, the grim expression out of place on his friendly face. Quoth, he said formally. I am telling you three times, take a term away. Eventually, I realized my friends were telling me the truth. Unfortunately, this left me entirely at loose ends. I had no exams to study for, and starting another project in the fishery would be nothing but foolishness. Even the thought of searching the archives for information on the Chandrian or the Amir had little appeal. I had searched so long and found so little. I toyed with the idea of searching elsewhere. There are other libraries, of course. Every noble house has at least a modest collection containing household accounts and histories of their lands and family. Most churches had extensive records going back hundreds of years, detailing trials, marriages, and dispositions. The same was true of any sizable city. The emir couldn't have destroyed every trace of their existence. The research itself wouldn't be the hard part. The hard part would be gaining access to the libraries in the first place. I could hardly show up in Raniere dressed in rags and road dust, asking to thumb through the palace archives. This was another instance in which a patron would have been invaluable. A patron could write me a letter of introduction that would open all manner of doors for me. What's more, with a patron's backing, I could make a decent living for myself as I traveled. Many small towns wouldn't even let you play at the local inn without a writ of patronage. The university had been the center of my life for a solid year. Now, confronted with the necessity of leaving, I was utterly at sea, with no idea of what I could do with myself. Chapter 50 Chasing the Wind I gave my admissions tile to Fella, telling her I hoped it brought her luck. And so the winter term came to an end. Suddenly, three-quarters of my life simply disappeared. I had no classes to occupy my time, no shifts in the Medica to fill. I could no longer check out materials from stocks, use tools in the fishery, or enter the archives. At first, it wasn't so bad. The midwinter pageantry was wonderfully distracting, and without the worry of work and study, I was free to enjoy myself and spend time in the company of my friends. Then spring term started. My friends were still there, but they were busy with their own studies. 
I found myself crossing the river more and more. Denna was still nowhere to be found, but Diak and Stanchion were always willing to share a drink and some idle gossip. Threp was there, too, and while he occasionally pressed me to attend a dinner at his house, I could tell his heart wasn't in it. My trial hadn't pleased people on this side of the river, either, and they were still telling stories about it. I wouldn't be welcome in any respectable social circle for a great long time, if ever. I toyed with the idea of leaving the university. I knew people would forget about the trial more quickly if I wasn't around. But where would I go? The only thought that came to mind was heading off to Yill with the vain hope of finding Denna. But I knew that was nothing but foolishness. Since I didn't need to save money for tuition, I went to repay Davy. But for the first time ever, I wasn't able to find her. Over the course of several days, I grew increasingly nervous. I even slid several apologetic notes under her door until I heard from Mola that she was taking a holiday and would be returning soon. Days passed, and I sat idle as winter slowly withdrew from the university. Frost left the corners of window panes, drifts of snow dwindled, and trees began to show their first greening buds. Eventually, Simon caught his first glimpse of bare leg beneath a flowing dress and declared spring had officially arrived. One afternoon, as I sat drinking metheglin with Stanchion, Threp came through the door practically bubbling with excitement. He whisked me off to a private table on the second tier, looking ready to burst with whatever news he was carrying. Threp folded his hands on the tabletop. Since we haven't had much luck finding you a local patron, I started casting my nets farther afield. It's nice to have a local patron— but if you have the support of a properly influential lord, it hardly matters where he lives. I nodded. My troop had ranged all over the four corners under the protection of Lord Greyfellow's name. Threp grinned. Have you ever been to Vintus? Possibly, I said. Then, seeing his puzzled look, I explained. I traveled quite a bit when I was young. I can't remember if we ever made it that far east. He nodded. Do you know who the Mayor Alvaron is? I did, but I could tell Threp was bursting to tell me himself. I seem to remember something, I said vaguely. Threp grinned. You know the expression, rich as the king of Vint? I nodded. Well, that's him. His great-great-grandfathers were the kings of Vint, back before the Empire stomped in, converting everyone to the Iron Law and the Book of the Path. If not for a few quirks of fate a dozen generations back, Alvarin would be the royal family of Vintus, not the Calanthus. And my friend, the mayor, would be the king. Your friend? I said appreciatively. You know Mayor Alvaron? Threp made a vacillating gesture. Friend may be stretching things a little, he admitted. We've been corresponding for some years, exchanging news from our different corners of the world, doing each other a favor or two. It would be more appropriate to say we're acquainted. An impressive acquaintance? What is he like? His letters are quite polite, never a bit snobby, even though he does stand quite a good rank above me, Threp said modestly. He's every bit a king except for the title and crown, you know, when Vintus formed, his family refused to surrender any of their plenary powers. 
That means the mayor has the authority to do most anything King Roderick himself can do. Grant titles, raise an army, coin money, levy taxes. Threp shook his head sharply. Ah, I forget what I'm doing, he said as he began to search his pockets. I received a letter from him only yesterday. He produced a piece of paper, unfolded it, then cleared his throat and read, I know you're knee-deep in poets and musicians out there, and I am rather in need of a young man who is good with words. I cannot find anyone to suit me here in Severin, and, everything said, I would prefer the best. He should be good with words above all, perhaps a musician of some sort. After that, I would desire him to be clever, well-spoken, mannerly, educated, and discreet. On reading this list, you may see why I have had no luck finding such a one for myself— if you happen to know a man of this rare sort, encourage him to call on me. I would tell you what use I intend to put him to, but the matter is of a private nature. Threp studied the letter for a moment or two. It goes on for a bit. Then he says, As to the matter I mentioned before, I am in some haste. If there is no one suitable in Imre, please send me a letter by post. If you happen to send someone my way, encourage him to make speed. Threp's eyes scanned the paper for a moment more, his lips moving silently. That's all of it, he said finally, and tucked it back into a pocket. What do you think? You do me a great— Yes, yes, he waved a hand impatiently. You're flattered. Skip all that. He leaned forward seriously. Will you do it? Will your studies— He made a dismissive gesture westward toward the university. Permit an absence of a season or so? I cleared my throat. I've actually been considering taking my studies abroad for a time. The Count burst into a wide grin and thumped the arm of his chair. Good! he laughed. I thought I was going to have to pry you out of your precious university like a penny from a dead shim's fist. This is a wonderful opportunity, you realize. Once in a lifetime, really. He gave me a sly wink. Besides... A young man like yourself would be hard-pressed to find a better patron than a man who's richer than the King of Vint. There's some truth to that, I admitted aloud. Silently, I thought, could I hope for better assistance in my search for the Amir? There's much truth to that, he chuckled. How soon can you be ready to leave? I shrugged. Tomorrow? Threp raised an eyebrow. You don't give much time for the dust to settle, do you? He said he was in haste, and I'd rather be early than late. True, true. He drew a silver gear watch from his pocket, looked at it, then sighed as he clicked it closed. I'll have to miss some sleep tonight drafting a letter of introduction for you. I glanced at the window. It's not even dark yet, I said. How long do you expect it to take? Hush, he said crossly. I write slowly, especially when I'm sending a letter to someone as important as the mayor. Plus, I have to describe you. No easy task by itself. Let me help you, then, I said. No sense losing sleep on my account, I smiled. Besides, if there's one thing I'm well-versed in, it's my own good qualities. The next day, I made a round of hasty goodbyes to everyone I knew at the university. I received heartfelt handshakes from Willem and Simon and a cheerful wave from Ari. Kilvin grunted without looking up from his engraving and told me to write down any ideas I might have for the ever-burning lamp while I was away. 
Arwell gave me a long, penetrating look through his spectacles and told me there would be a place for me in the Medica when I returned. Elksadal was refreshing after the other master's reserved responses. He laughed and admitted he was a little jealous of my freedom. He advised me to take full advantage of every reckless opportunity that presented itself. If a thousand miles wasn't enough to keep my escapade secret, he said, then nothing would. I had no luck finding Elodin and settled for sliding a note under the door of his office. Though since he never seemed to use the place, it might be months before he found it. I bought a new travel sack and a few other things a sympathist should never be without. Wax, string, and wire, hook, needle, and gut. My clothes were easy to pack, as I didn't own many. As I loaded my pack, I slowly realized I couldn't take everything with me. This came as something of a shock. For so many years, I'd been able to carry everything I've owned, usually with a hand to spare. But since I'd moved into this small garret room, I'd begun gathering oddments and half-finished projects. I now had the luxury of two blankets. There were pages of notes, a circular piece of half-inscribed tin from the fishery, a broken gear clock I'd taken to pieces to see if I could put it back together again. I finished loading my travel sack, then packed everything else into the trunk that sat at the foot of my bed. A few worn tools, a broken piece of slate I used for ciphering, a small wooden box with the handful of small treasures Ari had given me. Then I went downstairs and asked Anchor if he would mind stowing my possessions in the basement until I returned. He admitted a little guiltily that before I'd started sleeping there, the tiny slant-ceilinged room had been empty for years and only used for storage. He was willing to leave it unrented if I promised to continue our current room-for-music arrangement after I returned. I gladly agreed and swinging my loot case onto my shoulder, I headed out the door. I wasn't entirely surprised to find Elodin on Stonebridge. Very little about the master namer surprised me these days. He sat on the waist-high stone lip of the bridge, swinging his bare feet over the hundred-foot drop to the river below. Hello, Quoth, he said without turning his eyes from the churning water. Hello, Master Elodin, I said. I'm afraid I'm going to be leaving the university for a term or two. Are you really afraid? I noticed a whisper of amusement in his quiet, resonant voice. It took me a moment to realize what he was referring to. It's just a figure of speech. The figures of our speaking are like pictures of names. Vague, weak names, but names nonetheless. Be mindful of them. He looked up at me. Sit with me for a moment. I started to excuse myself, then hesitated. He was my sponsor, after all. I set down my loot and travel sack on the flat stone of the bridge. A fond smile came over Elodin's boyish face, and he slapped the stone parapet next to himself with the flat of his hand, offering me a seat. I looked over the edge with a hint of anxiety. I'd rather not, Master Elodin. He gave me a reproachful look. Caution suits an arcanist. Assurance suits a namer. Fear does not suit either. It does not suit you. He slapped the stone again, more firmly this time. I carefully climbed onto the parapet and swung my feet over the edge. The view was spectacular, exhilarating. Can you see the wind? I tried. For a moment, it seemed as if... No. It was nothing.
I shook my head. Elodin shrugged nonchalantly, though I sensed a hint of disappointment. This is a good place for a namer. Tell me why. I looked around. Wide wind, strong water, old stone. Good answer. I heard genuine pleasure in his voice. But there is another reason. Stone, water, and wind are other places, too. What makes this different? I thought for a moment, looked around, shook my head. I don't know. Another good answer. Remember it. I waited for him to continue. When he didn't, I asked, What makes this a good place? He looked out over the water for a long time before he answered. It is an edge, he said at last. It is a high place with a chance of falling. Things are more easily seen from edges. Danger rouses the sleeping mind. It makes some things clear. Seeing things is a part of being a namer. What about falling? I asked. If you fall, you fall, Elodin shrugged. Sometimes falling teaches us things, too. In dreams, you often fall before you wake. We were both silent in our thoughts for a while. I closed my eyes and tried to listen for the name of the wind. I heard the water below, felt the stone of the bridge beneath my palms. Nothing. Do you know what they used to say when a student left the university for a term? Elodin asked. I shook my head. They said he was chasing the wind, he chuckled. I've heard the expression. Have you? What did it seem to mean? I took a moment to choose my words. It had a frivolous flavor, as if students were running around to no good purpose. Elodin nodded. Most students leave for frivolous reasons, or to pursue frivolous things. He leaned forward to look straight down at the river below. But that was not always the meaning of it. No? No. He sat back up again. Long ago, when all students aspired to be namers, things were different. He licked a finger and held it to the air. The name most fledgling namers were encouraged to find was that of the wind. After they found that name, their sleeping minds were aroused and finding other names was easier. But some students had trouble finding the name of the wind. There were too few edges here, too little risk. So they would go off into the wild, uneducated lands. They would seek their fortunes, have adventures, hunt for secrets and treasure. He looked at me. But they were really looking for the name of the wind. Our conversation paused as someone came onto the bridge. It was a man with dark hair and a pinched face. He was watching us from the corner of his eye without turning his head, and as he walked behind us, I tried not to think how easy it would be for him to push me off the bridge. Then he was past us. Elodin gave a weary sigh and continued. Things have changed. There are even fewer edges now than there were before. The world is less wild. There are fewer magics, more secrets, and only a handful of people who know the name of the wind. You know it, don't you? I asked. Elodin nodded. It changes from place to place, but I know how to listen for its changing shape. He laughed and clapped me on the shoulder. You should go! Chase the wind! 
Do not be afraid of the occasional risk. He smiled. In moderation. I swung my legs around, hopped off the thick wall, and resettled my loot and travel sack over my shoulder. But as I started toward Imre, Elodin's voice stopped me. Quoth? I turned and saw Elodin lean forward over the side of the bridge. He grinned like a schoolboy. Spit for luck! Davy opened the door for me and widened her eyes in shock. My goodness, she said, pressing a piece of paper dramatically to her chest. I recognized it as one of the notes I left under her door. It's my secret admirer. I was trying to pay off my loan, I said. I made four trips. The walk is good for you, she said with a cheerful lack of sympathy as she motioned me inside, bolting the door behind me. The room smelled of... I sniffed. What is that? I asked. Her expression went rueful. It was supposed to be pear. I lay down my loot case and travel sack and took a seat at her desk. Despite my best intentions, my eyes were drawn to the charred black ring. Davy tossed her strawberry blonde hair and met my eye. Care for a rematch? She asked, her mouth curving. I can still take you, gram or no gram. I can take you while I'm dead asleep. I'll admit to being curious, I said, but I should tend to business instead. Very well, she said. Are you really going to pay me off entire? Have you finally found yourself a patron? I shook my head. However, I have had a remarkable opportunity arise. The chance to get a fine patron indeed. I paused. Inventus. She raised an eyebrow. That's a long ways off, she said pointedly. I'm glad you stopped to settle your debt before jaunting off to the other side of the world. Who knows when you'll be back? Indeed, I said. However, I find myself in a bit of an odd place, financially speaking. Davy was already shaking her head before I finished speaking. Absolutely not. You're already into me for nine talents. I'm not loaning you more money the day you leave town. I held up my hands defensively. You misunderstand, I said. I opened my purse and spilled talents and jots onto the table. Denna's ring tumbled out, too, and I stopped it before it could roll off the edge of the table. I gestured to the pile of coins in front of me, slightly more than thirteen talents. This is all the money I have in the world, I said. With it, I need to get myself to Severin with fair speed, a thousand miles with some to spare. That means passage on at least one ship, food, lodging, money for coaches, or the use of a post-note. As I listed each of these things, I slid an appropriate amount of money from one side of the desk to the other. When I finally arrive in Severin, I will need to buy myself clothes that will allow me to move among the court without looking like the ragged musician I am. I slid more coins. I pointed at the few straggling coins remaining. This does not leave me enough to settle my debt with you. Davy watched me over her steepled fingers. I see, she said seriously. We must discover some alternate method for you to square your debt. My thought is this, I said. I can leave you with collateral against my eventual return. Her eyes flickered down to the slender, dark shape of my loot case. Not my loot, I said quickly. I need that. What then? she asked. 
You've always said you have no collateral. I have a few things, I said, rummaging around in my travel sack and brought up a book. Davy's eyes lit up. Then she read the spine. Rhetoric and logic? She made a face. I feel the same way, I said, but it's worth something, especially to me. Also, I reached into the pocket of my cloak and brought out my hand lamp. I have this, a sympathy lamp of my own design. It has a focused beam and a graded switch. Davy picked it up off the desk, nodding to herself. I remember this, she said. Before, you said you couldn't give it up because of a promise you'd made to Kilvin. Has that changed? I gave a bright smile that was two-thirds lie. That promise is actually what makes that lamp the perfect piece of collateral, I said. If you take this lamp to Kilvin, I have every confidence he will pay a lavish sum just to get it out of... I cleared my throat. Unsavory hands. Davy flicked the switch idly with her thumb, spinning it from dim to bright and back again. And I imagine this would be a stipulation you require, that I return it to Kilvin. You know me so well, I said. It's almost embarrassing. Davy set the lamp back on the table next to my book and took a slow breath through her nose. A book that's only valuable to you, she said, and a lamp that's only valuable to Kilvin. She shook her head. This is not an appealing offer. I felt a pang as I reached to my shoulder and unclasped my talent pipes and slid them onto the table as well. Those are silver, I said, and hard to come by. They'll get you into the Aeolian free, too. I know what they are. Davy picked them up and looked them over with a sharp eye. Then she pointed. You had a ring. I froze. That's not mine to give. Davy laughed. It's in your pocket, isn't it? She snapped her fingers. Come now, let me see it. I brought it out of my pocket, but I didn't hand it over. I went through a lot of trouble for this, I said. It's the ring Ambrose took from a friend of mine. I'm just waiting to return it to her. Davy sat silently, her hand outstretched. After a moment, I put the ring onto her palm. She held it close to the lamp and leaned forward, squinting one eye closed on her pixie face. That's a nice stone, she said appreciatively. The setting's new, I said miserably. Davy set the ring carefully on top of the book next to my pipes and hand lamp. Here is the deal, she said. I will keep these items as collateral against your current debt of nine talents. This will last for the space of one year. A year and a day, I said. A smile curved the corner of her mouth. How storybook of you. Very well. This will postpone your repayment for a year and a day. If you have not repaid me by the end of that time, these items will be forfeit, and our debt will be cleared. Her smile went sharp. Though I may be persuaded to return them in exchange for certain information. I heard the belling tower in the distance and gave a deep sigh. I didn't have much time for bargaining as I was already late for my meeting with Threp. Fine, I said, irritated. But the ring will be kept somewhere safe. You can't wear it until I've defaulted. Davy frowned. You don't... I'm not movable on this point. 
I said seriously. It belongs to a friend. It is precious to her, and I would not have her see it on someone else's hand. Not after everything I did to get it back from Ambrose. Davy said nothing, her pixie face set in a grim expression. I put on my own grim expression and met her eye. I do a good grim expression when I need to. A long moment of silence stretched between us. Fine, she said at last. We shook hands. A year and a day, I said. Chapter 51 All Wise Men Fear I stopped by the Aeolian where Threp was waiting for me, practically dancing with impatience. He had, he told me, found a boat heading downriver in less than an hour. What's more, he had already paid my way as far as Tarbian, where I should easily be able to find passage east. The two of us hurried to the docks, arriving just as the ship was going through its final preparations. Threp, red-faced and puffing from our brisk walk, hurried to give me a lifetime's worth of advice in the space of three minutes. The mayor is old, old blood, he said. Not like most of the little nobility around these parts who can't tell you who their great-grandfathers are, so treat him with respect. I rolled my eyes. Why did everyone always expect me to behave so poorly? And remember, he said, if you look like you're chasing money, they'll see you as provincial. As soon as that happens, no one will take you seriously. You're there to curry favor. That's the high-stakes game. Besides, fortune follows favor, as they say. If you get one, you'll have the other. It's like what Tecum wrote. The cost of a loaf is a simple thing, and so a loaf is often sought. But some things are past valuing. Laughter, land, and love are never bought. I finished. It was actually a quote from Gregan the Lesser, but I didn't bother correcting him. Hold there! A tan-bearded man shouted to us from the deck of the ship. We got one straggler we're waiting on, and Captain's angry as an ugly whore. He swears he'll leave if he ain't here in two minutes. You'd do well to be aboard by then. He wandered off without waiting for a reply. Address him as your grace, Threp continued, as if we hadn't been interrupted. And remember, speak least if you would be most often heard. Oh! He drew a sealed letter from his breast pocket. Here's your letter of introduction. I may send another copy by post, just so he knows to expect you. I gave him a broad smile and gripped his arm. Thank you, Den, I said earnestly. For everything. I appreciate all of this more than you know. Threp waved the comment aside. I know you'll do splendidly. You're a clever boy. Mind that you find a good tailor when you get there. The fashions will be different. As they say, know a lady by her manner a man by his cloth. I knelt and opened up my loot case. Moving the loot aside, I pressed the lid of the secret compartment and twisted it open. I slid Threp's sealed letter inside, where it joined the hollow horn with Nina's drawing in a small sack of dried apple I had stowed there. There was nothing special about the dried apple, but, in my opinion, if you have a secret compartment in your loot case and don't use it to hide things, there is something terribly, terribly wrong with you. I snapped the clasps closed, refastening the lid, then stood and gathered up my belongings, ready to board the ship. Threp gripped my shoulder suddenly. I almost forgot. Alvaron mentioned in one of his letters that the young people in his court gamble. He thinks it's a deplorable habit, so stay clear of it. And remember, 
Small thaws make great floods, so be twice wary of a slowly changing season. I saw someone running down the dock toward us. It was the pinch-faced man who had passed a Loden and me on Stonebridge earlier. He carried a cloth-wrapped package close under one arm. I'm guessing that's their missing sailor, I said quickly. I'd better get aboard. I gave Threp a quick embrace and tried to get away before he could give me any more advice. But he caught my sleeve as I turned. Be careful on your way there, he said, his expression anxious. Remember, there are three things all wise men fear. The sea in storm, a night with no moon, and the anger of a gentle man. The sailor passed us and hit the gangplank running, unmindful of how the board jounced and clattered under his feet. I gave Threp a reassuring smile and followed close on his heels. Two leathery men hauled up the plank and I returned Threp's final wave. Orders were shouted, men scrambled, and the ship began to move. I turned to face downriver, toward Tarbian, toward the sea. Chapter 52 a Brief Journey My route was a simple one. I would head downriver to Tarbian, through the Refting Strait, down the coast toward Junpui, then up the Arand River. It was more roundabout than going over land, but better in the long run. Even if I were to purchase a post letter and change horses at every opportunity, it would still take me almost three span to reach Severin over land, and most of that time would be in southern Atur and the small kingdoms. Only priests and fools expected the roads in that part of the world to be safe. The water route added several hundred miles to the distance traveled, but ships at sea need not mind the twistings and turnings of a road. And while a good horse can set a better pace than a ship, you can't ride a horse day and night without stopping to rest. The water route would take about a dozen days, depending on the weather. My curiosity was also glad to take the sea route, I had never been on any water larger than a river. My only real concern was that I might become bored with nothing but wind, waves, and sailors for company. Several unfortunate complications arose during the trip. In brief, there was a storm, piracy, treachery, and shipwreck, although not in that order. It also goes without saying that I did a great many things, some heroic, some ill-advised, some clever and audacious. Over the course of my trip, I was robbed, drowned, and left penniless on the streets of Junpui. In order to survive, I begged for crusts, stole a man's shoes, and recited poetry. The last should demonstrate more than all the rest how truly desperate my situation became. However, as these events have little to do with the heart of the story, I must pass them over in favor of more important things. Simply said, it took me sixteen days to reach Severin a bit longer than I had planned, but at no point during my journey was I ever bored. Chapter 53 The Shear I limped through the gates of Severin, ragged, penniless, and hungry. I am no stranger to hunger. I know the countless hollow shapes it takes inside you. This particular hunger wasn't a terrible one. I'd eaten two apples and some salt pork a day ago, so this hunger was merely painful. It wasn't the bad hunger that leaves you weak and trembling. I was safe from that for at least eight hours or so. Over the last two span, everything I owned had been lost, destroyed, stolen, or abandoned. The only exception was my loot. 
Denna's marvelous case had paid for itself ten times during my trip. In addition to saving my life on one occasion, it had protected my loot, Threp's letter of introduction, and Nina's invaluable drawing of the Chandrian. You may notice I don't include any clothing on my list of possessions. There are two good reasons for this. The first is that you couldn't really call the grubby rags I wore clothing without stretching the truth to its breaking point. Secondly, I had stolen them, so it doesn't seem right to claim them as my own. The most irritating was the loss of Fella's cloak. I'd been forced to tear it up and use it for bandages in Jumpui. Nearly as bad was the fact that my hard-won gram now lay somewhere deep below the cold, dark waters of the Sentha Sea. The city of Severin was split into two unequal portions by a tall, white cliff. The majority of the living business of the city took place in the larger portion of the city at the foot of this cliff, aptly named the Sheer. Atop the Sheer was a much smaller piece of the city. It consisted mostly of estates and manor houses belonging to aristocracy and wealthy merchants. Also present were the attendant number of tailors, liveries, theaters, and brothels necessary to provide for the needs of the upper class. The stark cliff of white stone looked as if it had been thrust skyward to give the nobility a better view of the countryside. As it wandered off to the northeast and south, it lost height and stature. But where it bisected Severin, it was two hundred feet tall and steep as a garden wall. In the center of the city, a wide peninsula of cliff jutted out from the sheer. Perched on this outthrust piece of cliff was Mayor Alvaron's estate. Its pale stone walls were visible from anywhere in the city below. The effect was daunting, as if the mayor's ancestral home was peering down on you. Seeing it without a coin in my pocket or a decent set of clothes on my back was rather intimidating. I'd planned to take Threp's letter straight to the mayor despite my disheveled state, but looking up at the tall stone walls, I realized I probably wouldn't be let through the front door. I looked like a filthy beggar. I had few resources and even fewer options to choose from. With the exception of Ambrose some miles to the south in his father's barony, I didn't know a single soul in all of Ventus. I've begged before, and I've stolen— but only when I've had no other options available to me. They are dangerous occupations, and only a complete fool attempts them in an unfamiliar city, let alone an entirely new country. Here in Ventus, I didn't even know what laws I might be breaking. So I gritted my teeth and took the only option available to me. I wandered barefoot through the cobblestone streets of Severin Low until I found a pawn shop in one of the better parts of the city. I stood across the street for the better part of an hour, watching the people come and go, trying to think of some better option, but I simply didn't have one. So I removed Threp's letter and Nina's painting from the secret compartment in my loot case, crossed the street, and pawned my loot and case for eight silver nobles and a span note. If you've led the sort of easy life that's never taken you to the pawners, let me explain. The note was a receipt of sorts, and with it I could buy my loot back for the same amount of money so long as I did it within eleven days. On the twelfth day it became the property of the pawnbroker, who would undoubtedly turn around and sell it for ten times that amount. Back on the street, I hefted the coins. 
They seemed thin and insubstantial compared to Sealdish currency or the heavy Commonwealth pennies I was familiar with. Still, money spends the same the world round, and seven nobles bought me a fine suit of clothes of the sort a gentleman might wear, along with a pair of soft leather boots. What remained bought a haircut, shave, bath, and my first solid meal in three days. After that, I was coin poor again, but feeling much more sure of myself.